this morning. First Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 21. You know, one of the tendencies of us as people is that we desire to imitate people. Uh, we see this in all aspects of society. Um, but just let's look at a couple of different ideas really quickly. Uh, just think about fashion, right? Um, think about the, the fashion trends that we've seen come and go, and then what happens? Inevitably, they sometimes come back, right? Uh, think about bell bottoms, right? Uh, that kind of had its heyday, and then it went away, and yeah, there's a couple of those out there again now, right? Um, think about the like really puffy hairdos with the perms, right? Um, those kind of came. Why, why does everybody embrace those, and then everybody leaves those, right? Why does that happen? Well, it's because we, we like to be like others. We like to imitate those we like. And so somebody we like gets that puffy hairdo, and maybe we, we, we never thought of it before, but we see that person, we're like, I like that person, I like their puffy hairdo, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a puffy hairdo. Or, you know, maybe you never thought about wearing bell bottoms, but then because somebody you liked wears bell bottoms, you wear bell bottoms, right? Uh, so we, we like to imitate. And we do it with things that are, you know, kind of trivial, like fashion, puffy hairdos, and uh, bell bottoms. But we also do it in more important areas, right? And so kids like to imitate their parents. Uh, sometimes this is positive. Uh, my daughters like steamed broccoli. Why do they like steamed broccoli? Because I make steamed broccoli, and so they eat steamed broccoli. They like to imitate me, uh, but they also imitate me in poor ways as well. Uh, recently, we went to uh, the Iowa caucus. And after the Iowa caucus did not go the way I wanted it in my precinct, I mentioned to my wife, primarily, she was the recipient of this nugget of wisdom from me, that there are too many old ladies at the caucus location, and that's why it went that way. And so you better believe it, about two days later, little Eliana was waxing eloquent to the world and told everybody there are too many old ladies, and that's why it went the way it went. I said it. I shouldn't have said it. I confess. All right. They imitate, though. They love to imitate. And so it's not surprising that as, as the Bible tells us how we are to live, that it uses that same idea that we would love somebody, that we would love them such a way that we would desire to be like them. And it uses that for a believer in relationship to our God. Just consider a couple of these passages. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children, right? 1 Corinthians 11, 1. Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Paul telling the Corinthians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6. And you became followers of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. And you're going to see that same idea even in this context once again. Peter's argument really is that he wants us to grow in our love and our affection for Jesus Christ. And as we grow in our love for who God is and what he's given us in the person of Jesus Christ, that we would then, as a result, see our lives transformed by the power of the gospel and begin to see that in marked ways in how we live and how we relate to one another. Hopefully you will see that as we read the scripture together. If you would take your copy of God's word, stand with me. We'll read First, uh, First Peter chapter one, verses thirteen through twenty-one. First Peter chapter one, verses thirteen through twenty-one. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation 
of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead, and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. You see, the theme of this passage really is this, that God's praiseworthy acts demand a series of changes in his grateful children. God's Praiseworthy acts demand a series of changes in his grateful children. And so really, uh, he's just highlighted the fact that God is good. That God is to be blessed, right? And he's highlighted the fact that God is to be blessed, and he's to be blessed because of all the things that he's done for us. You look at verses 3 through 5. He's given you new life. He's given you an inheritance. He's given you this living hope. And it's kept by the power of God. You look at verses 6 through 9. He's given you a new purpose in the trials and the hardships of your life. No longer do you go through trials in the futile manner that the world does, but rather you realize that the trials that you endure prove the genuineness of your faith. He's allowed you to understand what he's doing and how he's working in a way that the angels and the prophets who wrote about God's future work didn't understand what he was going to do. And so he lays all this foundation. And now he says, therefore, this is what comes as a result. Because of this, God wants you and I to pursue transformation into his son's habit, or in, into his son's image. You see, what, what Paul did in verses 3 through 12 is not just some aimless rabbit trail that kind of digresses into the more intricate, detailed aspects of who God is, just to, you know, show off his theological prowess, right? He's not being a show-off. Rather, what he's doing is he's saying, hey, look at how good God is. And as you consider how good God is, think about how that should call you and I to change. And that's really what he's doing. It's as simple as that. Think about how good God is, and then think about how you need to change because of the goodness of your God. And so he begins, and he gives three different commands. The three different commands are that we're to rest in the hope of God, we're supposed to live holy lives, and we're supposed to live in fear. And then he concludes in verses 18 through 21 by saying, this is the reason why you do all this. Three different commands and a big reason for it. Okay. So first command, rest in the hope of God's grace. Verse 13, therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Peter really has begun to tell the believers about the great hope that they have in Christ Jesus. He's encouraged them, and he's pointed them to a number of different aspects, but he's pointed them to the fact that they have a living hope. You know, he's highlighted the fact that it doesn't go away. 
He's highlighted for them the fact that, you know, the other things that they have maybe are corruptible. They could be defiled. They could fade away. They're not reserved in heaven. They could be lost in some way. And here he's highlighting the fact that this is a living hope. It's something that you can't lose. But he goes on there, and as he does that, then he says, hey, therefore, there's something that you need to do because of how good God is, because of the fact that God is worthy of praise. And really, in our English translation, some of them uh, translate some of the adverbs like their, their commands. Really, there's just one command, and the command is this, rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. To gird up the winds of your mind and, and to be sober, explain how you do that. They're the steps, so to speak, of how you rest in the hope of God. It's grace. How do you do that? Well, you do that by girding up the winds of your mind and being sober. So, what do you need to do? You need to focus your attention on the hope that you have. And really, it's not found in what you and I desire, right? We talk about things that we hope for. It's not uncommon for us to talk that way, right? We, we look forward to all sorts of different things. Maybe you look forward to a sporting event. Maybe you're looking forward to a comedian that's going to come into town. Maybe you're looking forward to a musical concert that's going to come into town. We look forward to all sorts of things. And when we talk about, you know, I hope about this or I hope about that. My daughter just had her fifth birthday yesterday. She had all sorts of things lined up, including steamed broccoli for her supper menu. And then she chose not to have steamed broccoli for supper, and I was like, what's up with that? Um, but she has all these hopes, right? But what he's pointing us to is not these you know, trivial hopes that pass. Rather, he's pointing us to the grace of God, the fact that they have new life. It really goes back to the idea that you see in verse 3. Who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. See, it's not a cheap, menial hope. Rather, it's something that's acquired by Christ's death. And it provides you a living hope. The hope that one day you will be with Christ. That you will enjoy his presence. And he says, hey, focus your attention, focus your ambition not on all the other things, not on all your other desires, not on all the other things that we can look forward to, that we enjoy, and many of them we should, right? They're good gifts from God. But they're not a source of our hope. He says, instead, focus your attention, focus your hope on the grace of God, on the hope that that provides. And so as you think through all this, it's, it's appropriate, it's, it's necessary that you and I think through the different things that we find ourselves being drawn to and ask ourselves, are these appropriate sources of our hope? And so as you think through, you know, is this an appropriate source of my hope or is this not an appropriate source of my hope? I think one of the things that you should ask yourself is, are how are my actions demonstrating that I'm regularly setting my hope on the grace of God? What could somebody look at in your life? What can you look at in your life and say, this demonstrates that my hope is regularly being set on, or that my hope is regularly resting upon the hope of the grace of God? Or would they have to say that your hope is relying upon your family, or your work, or upon a TV show that you enjoy, or upon another bag of Doritos, 
four, 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 right? All sorts of things that you could be placing your hope in. Another way that you might ask the question is, what do you find yourself thinking about or stressing over as you go through life? Where is your attention? Where is your energy? Is it on the grace of God? Is it upon the hope that that grace provides you? Or is it upon something else? So he tells us, hey, this is what you have to do. You have to set your hope fully upon the grace of God. But then he doesn't just leave us there. Isn't that kind of Peter? He doesn't just tell you, hey, you need to think about this. He tells us a couple of steps that we need to be involved in to make that a reality in our life. Because it's not natural for me to set my hope on the grace of God. It's far more natural for me to set my hope on you know, what snack I'm going to have when the girls finally go to bed at 8 o'clock. That's, that's a much more easily, immediate, tangible hope, right? When they go to bed, I'm going to have another piece of birthday cake. Or when they go to bed, I'm going to watch a show with Bethany. Or when they go to bed, I'm going to get a relaxing shower and forget about it all in a nice, very, very warm shower. Or, you know, fill it in with whatever you find yourself thinking about, right? So how do you go about well, he says, one of the things that you and I need to do is, your hope will only be set by intentionally training your mind for obedience to the Lord. Notice, that's the first thing, that's the first adverb that he gives us. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Prepare your mind. The picture is really of, you know, back then, guys didn't wear nice slacks like you and I do. They didn't wear nice jeans. They wore something more akin to like a skirt or a dress. And so if you're going to work hard, what do you do? Well, it's kind of hard to, you know, lift cement blocks or do any sort of physical hard labor with a dress in the way. So what would they do? They kind of tie it up a little bit so that it kind of got out of the way. And that's the idea. That's the picture that he's using to help us to begin to think about this. If you're going to do physical labor and you have something that's obstructing your legs and the ability to use them well in that physical labor, what are you going to do? You're going to prepare yourself to do that work. In the same way, he says, you need to be thinking through and helping train your mind to do what you need to do. So how are you training your mind? How are you preparing your mind? So as you think through this, how are you being intentional? What are you doing to be intentional about your mind and how you train it? How you prepare it to focus on hope of the grace of God. Are you reminding yourself regularly of your dependence upon the grace of God? It should be something that we do daily. As we wake and as we begin our day, we remind ourselves, I am dependent upon the grace of God. That's where my hope lies. My hope doesn't rely on my kids doing what they, they're supposed to do. My hope doesn't rely upon, you know, people filling out their connection card. My hope doesn't rely upon somebody texting me back when I want to meet with them. What does my hope rely upon? My hope relies upon the grace of God. And the same thing is true for you. And, and so one of the things as we think about training our mind and preparing our mind is focusing our hope on the grace of God, reminding ourselves regularly that that is the source of our hope. And so think through even how can I better develop habits throughout life that help me to remember as hardships come up, 
And most of us have regularly repeated hardships, right? Uh, if you work with customers, you're going to regularly encounter trials and hardships that come with customers. If you work with other people that are sinners, you're going to regularly come into contact with problems that come with working with sinners. If you work with a bunch of kids, you're going to regularly come into contact with problems with working with kids and their sins against you. And, and so realizing as you go through life, hey, this is, this is something that I've seen regularly. You know, when a customer comes in and they're irate because they don't think that we did something wrong. They're right. How do you respond to that? Thinking through that and putting in place steps that help you think through even how you're going to respond to the customer before they come in irate, because you know that they're going to do it again, helps you to train your mind to rest upon the hope of God's grace. But he doesn't stop there. right? He tells us to set our hope, rest our hope fully upon the grace of God. He tells us to do that by preparing our minds, but he also tells us to do that by... Your hope will only train your minds if you're pursuing self-control or sobriety. Okay? Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace of God. It's like a, a chain. Like this leads to this leads to this. As you train your minds, you're able then to be sober. The idea is actually to be self-controlled. We, we talk about sobriety and we think of it in kind of a limited scope. Chances are, as we read through this, uh, you immediately thought about uh, addiction-type stuff, right? Like uh, drinking, or maybe you thought about drugs in some way. And that would be included. By no means is that excluded. But really, that's a very narrow view of what Paul is addressing here. He's not simply addressing the fact that you drink too many beers, or that you have an addiction to some sort of drug that you shouldn't be using. Rather, his idea is be self-controlled. As you train your mind, it should develop your ability to be self-controlled so that you rest your hope in God's grace. Because what's so true? It's so true that our hope is found in other things. We lack self-control, and so we place our hope in other things. We place our hope in what we drive. We place our hope in all sorts of things. And, and what is that a demonstration of? It's a demonstration of a lack of self-control. Because we're not training our mind to find our hope in what we should find it in. And so what he's saying is, hey, train your mind to be self-controlled. Live a self-controlled life. And, and so as you think through even, you know, how are you living as a self-controlled person? Think through, like, when was the last time you sinned? And what did that look like? The last time you sinned. What were the areas in which your sin demonstrated a lack of self-control? If things had gone the way you wanted them to, how would that have changed your sinful responses? You see, what Paul, Peter wants people to do is he wants them to have their hope set on the grace of God. And in order for you and I to do that, in order for the recipients of this first letter to do that, they have to be training their mind. And they have to be self-controlled. And so for you and I, this means that we're going to need to pursue training our mind, allowing the truth of Scripture to train us for righteousness, right? Not being conformed, but rather being transformed by the renewing of our minds, right? That's Romans chapter 12. 
And we have to then choose to live in a self-controlled way. It doesn't simply highlight the danger of alcohol, but rather it's saying, how have we lived in an unself-controlled way? How have we failed to live in obedience? And how is that being demonstrated? And what does that reveal about our hearts? And what we're pursuing? What we're desiring? And how can we live in such a way that our hope in those circumstances is resting instead upon the grace of God? and not in what we are pursuing or wanting in the midst of that sin. And so that's his first command. He says, hey, as we think about the goodness of God, the fact that God has given you new birth, he's given you new purpose and trials, he's given you an understanding of what he's doing that blew the imaginations of those who initially wrote about God's future work away. One of the steps that you and I must take is we must rest our hope in the grace of God because we understand it in a drastically different way, in a fuller way than anybody did prior to us. He goes on from there. He's not done yet. He tells us, hey, rest your hope fully upon the grace of God. And then he tells us that we're supposed to be holy like the Father. And this is really in verses 14 through 16. As obedient children, this is where you pick up that imagery of, you know, imitating those whom we love, right? As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. See, what he's saying is that our new relationship with the Father calls for changes in our lives. And really what he's doing, once again, is he's pointing us back to all the truth that he's described in verses 3 through 12. The, the therefore in verse 13 doesn't just apply to verse 13, it applies to the whole context. Because God is so good, and he's done praiseworthy acts in our lives, it demands that we do all sorts of different things. Not just that we rest our hope in him, but that we also seek to live a life that is characterized by holiness. And so he says, hey, this is what you're supposed to be doing. We can't continue to conform to the world. Rather, we're supposed to be transformed, right? To say that we've been changed, that we have been bought at such a high price, as he pictures, right, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus died so that you could have the blessings you have. That's the cost. And now he says, hey, that means that you're going to pursue a holy life. It's the epitome of foolishness. For you and I to think that, we can receive the gift of Christ and then continue to live in the same way that we did. That's really what he's arguing. He says it's, it's foolish for us to think that we can do that. Rather, as obedient children, we're not conforming ourselves to the former lessons in our ignorance. Why? Because that's what we did back in the day. Back when we didn't know any better. Now we do understand what Christ has done. And as we understand what Christ has done, it calls for us to live in obedience. So you have a new purpose. Our natural desires are contrary to this. And Paul highlights this, right? If you look at first, or Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 through 17, but if you bite and devour one another, 
Beware lest you be consumed by one another. I say then, walk in the Spirit and do not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. Okay? What is he saying? He's saying, hey, there's two different natures at war within you once you come to Christ. The one desires to continue to conform to the world, to live like the world, to pursue the sin that the world pursues. And the other, the Spirit, teaches you to do what? To pursue holiness. And Peter's saying, don't conform to the lust of the flesh. Rather, be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Pursue holiness. Pursue righteousness. But even as we, as we go through all this, right? It's not simply dependent upon you and I, right? And that's hinted at in Galatians, right? For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. Notice he capitalizes that. He's not simply saying it's your flesh against your spirit. He's saying it's your flesh against what? The Holy Spirit. See, God equips us for what he calls us to do. He doesn't simply tell us, hey, don't be conformed to the passions of this world. Rather, find your desire, find your hope in him. He tells us, hey, I'm going to care for you. I'm going to be with you as you go through this. Notice 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you, except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way to it of escape that you may be able to bear it. And so he promises to be with us. But notice how verse 15 continues to amplify this idea, right? You may think, as you read verse 14, that, you know, it's enough to just kind of live as an obedient child most of the time, right? Most of us would say, you know, we have obedient children. Does that mean your child obeys all the time? No. No, we have children that obey all the time. Sometimes we always, all of us disobey, right? We, as children of our Heavenly Father, sometimes we disobey, right? Some of us always disobey. Maybe in small ways, but still disobedience. And so it's not shocking that as he goes on in verse 15, he doesn't say, hey, it's enough for you to just be, you know what, we would mostly classify a child as, you know, they're an obedient child. Rather, what does he say? He says, all our conduct is to be in pursuit of holiness. Notice verse 15. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your You know, it leaves very little room for reinterpretation or misunderstanding. I can't be like, you know, I'm going to be holy in all these categories of my life, and yet this one I'm going to set aside on a shelf, and I'm going to keep that one for me. I'll be holy in everything else except for my relationship with my neighbors. My neighbors, they mow their lawn. I'm being facetious here, okay? I don't care how my neighbors actually mow their lawns. But, you know, I don't like how my neighbors mow their lawns, so I'm going to hold a grudge, you know? But I'll be holy in every other area of my life. Or I'm going to be holy in every other area of my life except for whatever it is. Right? Um, rather, he's saying every aspect of our being is supposed to be brought into conformity to God's standard, which is holiness. And really, this standard of holiness never is accomplished. Right? We're always striving. Because we're all going to have aspects of our life that are tainted by sin. Where we don't live in holiness. 
And so it really points us once again to what? The hope that we have. My hope isn't found in this world. My hope isn't found today. My hope is found in the grace of God that's stored up for me an inheritance and a living hope. One day I will be with Christ. And the power and the control of sin will be gone. It will be broken. But notice finally that our call to holiness is built on the character of God himself. That's really what he bases all of this on. He bases it upon the character of God. Look at verse 16. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. He says, hey, why do we pursue holiness? Why do we do this? Well, we do this because this is who God is. God is holy. And because God is holy, he calls you and I, as his children, to do what? To pursue holiness. To be like him. To pursue being in his image. If he likes steamed broccoli, you like steamed broccoli. If he says negative, nasty comments about people at the caucus location, you don't do that. God won't do that, right? But you're imitating. That's the idea, that you're seeking to be like in every way. And God is completely holy, without fail in every aspect. And so what do you do? You pursue holiness in every aspect. That's really what he bases it upon. Really, this goes back to, if you if you think through the context, it's, it's going back to God's law code, right? He gives them the laws, and he tells them, hey, this is how you're supposed to live, this is how you're supposed to obey, and he kind of summarizes it all in the Ten Commandments, right? He says, this is how you're supposed to live. Yet, as Jesus Christ comes, what happens? Jesus Christ comes, and he lives among us, and he gives us an example of what true holiness and true obedience to the Father looks like that surpasses what the law can give us. Jesus perfectly, without fail, followed and obeyed his Father. And so he's the example. He's the one who we are seeking to imitate and to be like. And Peter is not done with this whole idea of holiness and his, his focus on it. Notice in the very next chapter, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so as you think about all this, as you think about the requirement for you to live a holy life, and how that's even lived out, how that's accomplished in your life, it really begins with a knowledge of who God is. Right? What's the foundation for who you are to be? It's who God is. Not only in the New Testament here, but even in the Old Testament, right? What is Peter doing? Peter, in verse 16, is quoting Leviticus. And Leviticus says, Be holy, for I am holy. If you and I want to live holy lives, it's going to require that we have a growing knowledge of the Lord and his character, his holiness, his goodness. And so what does that look like in your life? What steps are you and I taking to grow in our knowledge of who God is? To grow in our obedience to Him? Are you and I maturing as His disciples, pursuing holiness because we see His character as we read Scripture? We realize that He's a good God. But then He gives the final command, verse 17. We are to live in the fear, live in fear of the judge. 
Notice verse 17. And you, and if you call on the Father, who without partiality, judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. Believers have been given a unique and special relationship with God the Father. And that's really what he's highlighting as he begins this. He's kind of hinted at it as he talks about them being obedient children. But now here he's going to highlight that idea. And if you call on the Father, you know, we were aliens. We were hostile to God. We were separated from God. And you know, what has he done? He's brought us near. He's made us his children. And it's easy sometimes for us to, to lose sight of what that implies, right? Sometimes you think of you know, a doting father who, who's unwilling to actually discipline his child, right? You've probably seen it. I've seen it. You go to too many locations outside of, you know, in, in the general public, you'll find it. Okay? The father who can't say no, right? Child comes up with a Mountain Dew, 7.30 at night. Can I have this? Absolutely. He scans it at the grocery store. You know, they want something at the gift shop, they get it. Like, everything's given to them. And it's easy for us to think that, you know, a, a good, perfect God is just like that doting father who just gives everything to their child without any care about disciplining and training that child. And, and what Peter is seeking to highlight is that, yes, God is a good father. But the fact that he's a good father doesn't negate the fact that he's still a good judge. And so notice how he develops this. Believers have a father who is also the judge. And if you call upon the father who without partiality judges according to each one's works, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. See how he's continuing to develop this idea. And yes, he's your father. He's a good father. He's a holy father. He's given you wonderful gifts through his son, Jesus Christ. You have been born again through his only begotten son. You have a new hope, a living inheritance stored up, kept for you by the power of God. You have a new purpose in the trials of your life. Yes, you understand what God's doing to a greater degree than anybody throughout history has ever done. And the angels desire to understand what in the world God is doing. But don't think that as a result of all that God has given you, that God is not going to judge. Now, he's not talking about salvation here. He's not talking about salvation. He's not talking about your relationship with God. Rather, he's talking about the rewards that you will get. Notice the text, right? Notice what verse 17 says. Judges according to each one's work. The highlight is, what are your works going to produce? Are your works, are my works, something that the Father is going to delight in and give rewards to at the final judgment? That's the question that he wants them to think about. That's the question that he wants us to think about. And so believers must remember that God is going to examine and judge each person's works without partiality. God doesn't allow anyone to get a pass. He looks at each one of our works and he judges them. He doesn't consider your lineage. He doesn't consider the time you spend in the church. He doesn't consider how much money you give to the church. He doesn't consider your past holiness. He doesn't ex consider your ex the extent that you've faced temptation. 
because of even other, other people's sin. He doesn't look at it and go, you know, they were really under a really hard situation right there. I mean, their whole workplace was yelling at them. And that was completely unjustified. It's, it's completely understandable that they would then lash out at their workplace too because everybody else was yelling at them. That's not what they said. We'll look over that one without partiality. God doesn't look at any of our sin with partiality. He looks at it and he says, that's a sin, that's a sin, that's a sin, that's a sin. He doesn't care about the circumstances involved in your sin. None of them. He judges without partiality. And so the conclusion of all this, where the actual command comes then is, the believers then must live in fearful, fearful reverence of the Lord. Verse 17, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. You're looking forward to something else. This is a, this is a temporary, short-term stay motel. Okay, That's all this is. It may last 50 years, 60 years, 70 years, 80 years, 90 years, 100 if you're really blessed. But it's a short-term stay. That's what he's emphasizing. It's a short-term stay. In the grand scheme of eternity, this doesn't matter. But what comes at the reward ceremony, that matters. Because really what, what, what the rewards do is, they're like a spotlight. How many of you like spotlights? Probably most of you don't really think about spotlights. We actually have like six spotlights right up here. The pianists care about the spotlights, right? Helps them see the music. Probably at times you care about the spotlights because it helps you see me. Our building, it doesn't matter so much. But if you go to like a big performing arts center place, right, what happens during the actual performance? All the lights are dimmed except for what? The spotlights. And why do we have spotlights? So that you and the audience can clearly see what's going on up here, right? And really, what, what happens is, as you receive your rewards, what happens? Those rewards aren't for you to get and, and showcase your goodness, your glory, Rather, the rewards that you and I receive are a showcase the glory of God. Because it's because of God's glory that you got saved. It's because of God's grace that you were sanctified and that you were able to do any of the good that you did. And so that's really what I think Paul is highlighting, even as you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 9 through 15. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds. For no other foundation can lay anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Notice what is he saying? Your salvation is secure, but the reward is lost. That ability to shine a spotlight on the glory and the wonder of God in eternity forever is lost. And that's what Peter is saying is, be living in fearful awe of that day. One day you'll be a spotlight. I don't know about you, but I like bright lights. We go to the store, we always buy lights for at least a thousand lumens. 
increases the electric bill, but I can see. I like seeing, okay? And the question is, what kind of spotlight do you want to be in eternity? You want to be one that's, you know, that little lamp on the side of your bed that you turn on in the middle of the night so you don't wake up your spouse? Or you want something that actually shows something glorious? Okay, I want to encourage you that your desire should be that you live so the reward you have is actually something that shines greatly upon the glory of God throughout eternity, highlighting his grace and his wonder in your life. And that's what Peter is saying is you live in fearful awe of that day. One day God is going to judge. And either your life is going to show his glory or it's going to just be another light. Now, in eternity, I don't think you're going to like suffer loss as a result of that. How are you living? How are you living? That is Peter's question. And so, why do we do all this? Right? It really comes down to the why, right? And, and what he says is in verses 18 through 21, we do all this because of the high price of our redemption. Because of the high price of our redemption. Notice verses 18 through 21. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. But with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead, and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. The, the previous commands are built on Christ's work of redemption. And he highlights this in two different ways. He begins by highlighting the fact that it's, it's not the negative things, right? Hey, it's not the corruptible things. And he says things like, it's not the corruptible things like gold and silver. Most of us are like, uh, that's that's the exact thing that I really like, right? Like, when you go and you buy a ring for somebody, you're not like, you know, man, I bought a corruptible ring for Bethany. You know, it was only, it was only gold, you know. That's it. Hope she likes it. You know, like, when I, when I came home with that ring, I, I told my sister, this is the ring. This is Bethany's engagement ring. It's in this drawer. If the house catches on fire, you get this first. That's what I told her. She still asked me. Okay, But that's the idea, right? Like, I'm not thinking that it's something that's corruptible, but that's what he says. In light of the value of Christ's blood, it's corruptible. And really, as you think about the corruptibility, like, the whole idea makes sense, right? What does God say about the coming cosmos? What's going to happen? But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for the fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. How can God allow something that's going to be burned up in a cosmic fire to redeem humanity? That's absurd. It itself, the gold and the silver that we so enjoy on our jewelry and on our coins, it's going to be burned up. It's worth nothing. But instead, what are we redeemed by? He says we're redeemed instead with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. You see, God's redemption is instead based on the blood of Christ. And his focus is, hey, don't squander it. Right? He wants us to have a, an attention and a focus that's similar to that of the hymn that says, the hymn that says, Oh, to see my name, written in the wounds, for through your suffering I am free. Death is crushed to death. Life is mine to live. Won through your selfless love. This the power of the cross. Son of God, slain for us. What a love, what a cost. We stand forgiven of 
the cross. And that's what he's highlighting. That's what he's focusing our attention on. That we have a great redeemer. That the cost of our redemption was great. And so it makes complete sense for you and I to rest our minds on the hope that we have in his grace. To live with purity. To live in reverential fear of the day in which God will judge our works. Because our redemption makes all that worth it. But then he also highlights in verse 20 that this was God's plan from all time. Notice verse 20. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. This wasn't God's plan B or C or D. This was God's plan for all eternity. That he would redeem you and me through his son. We think about even the, the joy that is expressed as the angels rejoice in Christ's coming. They didn't understand what was going to happen. They didn't know that Jesus was going to go die on a cross. All they knew was that God's son, Jesus Christ, was coming to the world to live among sinful people. And they're like, whoa! And they're like, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. That's what they go and they tell the shepherds, right? You can only imagine us as Jesus then walks to the cross, preparing to die for humanity's sins, what the angels in heaven were thinking of them. Whoa! This is how God's grace is going to be shown to humanity? Really mind-boggling stuff to the angels. And that's what he's highlighting, is that this isn't God's you know, second-class plan. God's plan for how he was going to redeem you was established from eternity past. And then he concludes in verse 21 by saying, This redeeming hope and motivation is only yours through faith in his finished work. You know, all these commands, the command to set your hope on the grace of God, the command to live a holy life, the command to live in fear because of the redemption that you have is only yours if you've actually placed your faith in the finished work of Christ. And it's not unlikely that somebody here would not have ever done that. That we could hear, that we could celebrate, that we could even seek to live out these commands apart from the value of the redemption of Christ in our lives. That we could try to do it in our own strength. But notice what Peter says. Who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that what? Your faith and hope are in God. You can't fulfill any of these commands apart from placing your faith in Christ. And so as you look at your life and as you ask some of the questions that I've asked throughout the sermon, and you examine your life and you say, you know, maybe I'm not doing this. One of the things that you should put on the table as you consider all this is, have I really placed my faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ? Have I realized that I'm a sinner, that my sin separates me from a holy God? And have I placed my faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ? Who came, who lived, he died, he was buried, and he rose again, triumphant. You see, we're on the winning side. And that's really what Peter is highlighting here, is that we are winners. And so we're going to live as people who are on the winning side. That's what makes it all worth it. That's what makes it make it all sense. Otherwise, we would live for our current passions. But knowing that we have won the battle through Christ, we live as victors. We set our hope the grace of God. 
We live holy lives. We live in reverential fear because we know that Christ's redemption is sufficient. And so that's really what Peter is highlighting. And so a couple of quick ideas by way of application. Remind yourself regularly of the hope you have in God's grace. Remind yourself regularly. Pursue holiness as your Father is holy. Pursue holiness. Live in reverential fear as you examine your works. And then rejoice often in the splendor of the redemption that is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, as we go, let me just point you once again to the grace of God, right? It's the grace of God that does all. And so it's not shocking at all that as Peter concludes, he tells us this, but may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a little while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. But he also tells us what? Be sober. Be vigilant. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And so... Uh, that really calls us then to respond, right? And we each have various areas in which we probably have been convicted that we need to respond. If you would like um, to tell me about that, you can. Otherwise, I would just ask that you fill out a card. You can either do this by scanning the QR code on the back of the bulletin, or in your email you'll have it as well. Uh, or you can fill out this card and you can put it in the little box with the flowers on it in the back. Um, and you can give me as much detail or as little detail as you would like. Uh, let me remind you of a couple of things that are coming up this week. Uh, this week, um, we have the engagement meeting right after the service. So we'd encourage you to join us for that if you're interested in uh, helping us reach out and engage our community a little bit better. We also have Meaningful Motherhood tomorrow. Um, and then um, the Men's Fellowship Breakfast is this Saturday. So hopefully you can join us for that. Uh, if you would, please fill out your connection cards. Turn those in either digitally or uh, in paper form, and um, that's all that I have. Scott, would you come and lead us in our closing song? Let's stand for our last song. <clears throat>